Hello, and welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles. If you enjoy this conversation, there are a few different ways you can support us. You can buy a book from our online store, shakespeareandcompany.com, including the title discussed in this episode, a link to which you'll find in the show notes. There, you'll also find our year of reading subscription, as well as Shakespeare and Company totes, apparel, mugs and other gifts, all shipped from Paris to wherever you are in the world. You can also become a friend of Shakespeare and Company, a programme we set up to get the bookshop through this difficult year. Membership gets you access to exclusively produced content throughout 2021, as well as other treats depending on the tier you choose. Contributors so far include Molly Crabapple, Aishan Hutchinson, Olivia Lang, Deborah Levy, Katika Nair, Clemence Posey, Natalie Portman and George Saunders. You can find out more on friendsofshakespeareandcompany.com. Finally, you can rate this podcast wherever you listen. And if you have time, leave a review. It can really help spread the word. I'll be back at the end. Until then, thank you for listening and enjoy the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Good evening, everybody. Good evening. Welcome to Shakespeare and Company. We are so happy to be hosting our first outside reading tonight for almost three years. And to be resurrecting our collaboration with the New York University Creative Writing Programme. Since the NYU faculty and students were last on this terrace, Notre Dame has lost a spire. And the world has been shut down for about a year and a half. So I just wanted to let you know at once how normal and how special your company this evening feels. You may notice that there are only two chairs on stage tonight, and that's because, thanks to the moving target of COVID travel restrictions, we're sad to say that Nadifa Mohammed and Tamina Anam were unable to make it to Paris. However, we are delighted to say that all of the various testing and quarantine hurdles couldn't keep Pola Aloysirak and John Freeman away. And believe me, they have a lot to talk about. Pola Aloysirak was born in Buenos Aires in 1977. Her debut novel, Savage Theories, was a breakout bestseller in Argentina and was nominated for the Best Translated Book Award. And in 2010, Granta recognized her as one of the best young Spanish-language novelists. She was awarded the 2021 Eccles Center and Hay Festival Writers Award, and her fiction has appeared in Granta, N Plus One, The White Review, as well as an issue of Freeman's on the future of new writing. John Freeman, in case he needs any introduction, is the founder of Freeman's and an executive editor at Alfred A. Knopf. The author and editor of 10 books, his works include the anthologies Tales of Two Planets and the Penguin Book of the Modern American Short Story, a book-length essay, Dictionary of the Undoing, and two extraordinary collections of poems, Maps and the Park. His most recent book, co-edited with Tracy K. Smith, is There's a Revolution Outside My Love. Please give a warm welcome to Pola and John. Oh, it's so nice to be back here. It really is to be in a group and to be among friends, but even we better, like to be among strangers. No, it's exactly. just, it's like it feels like these last couple of years have been um, very hard ones for the faith and, and, and the unknown people that are around us all the time, for, uh, partly because of the jubilant cruelties of recent forces of nationalism, which have labeled people certain ways part of it from this terrible pandemic, which is still going, uh, and part of it from a kind of rise in reaction to both of these forces and other ones long going of certain labels of identity that, uh, which are meant to be inclusive, but in some ways end up to some degree imprisoning people from each other, which is among many of the topics of this new novel uh, by Pola Olasharak, Mona. And one of the reasons I'm so glad to talk to you is Pola, among so many other wonderful faculties as a novelist of being hilarious, of writing so brilliantly, 
and prodigiously uh, about the, 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 the philosophies that we organize our lives around, she, um, she also thinks of us on a species level. Uh, and, and as an almost anthropologist of the, the belief systems and the systems that we find ourselves caught in. And I guess I want to ask you to start off with um, if I've over-egged that description to some degree of what the, the sort of system that Pola, that Mona finds herself caught up in in this book. Um, that it's not uh, the savage theories of your first book and the idea of, of, of our connection to simians. It's not the the rise of the internet and surveillance and the kind of digital data culture of your your second book, uh, Dark Constellations, it's it's about identity and where Mona is meant to be placed. Thank you, John. This, <laughs> it's so special to be here, honestly, and, and to feel so nervous and excited just because so many people I've never seen are here. Uh, I mean, as, as a species, <laughs> I'm very touched. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, in Mona, I was interested in um, in seeing how we uh, not only kind of like market ourselves in terms of our identities, but also um, how we're trapped by them and how uh, it's kind of difficult to connect with other people just because, you know, we are leveled in a certain way. Um, because we are expected to play like you know a specific role or kind of like to play a sketch, and but at the same time, the I mean this kind of I mean of well of of feelings or situations uh, re- really feel kind of the, the um, I mean the material for comedy. So I I wanted to make a book so I could kind of like laugh with those characters and at the same time kind of like live with them. Because I had I had cherished them throughout. Uh, one of the things I mean I think this is maybe relevant to say because you most of the people here are writers and are and are writing now. Uh, that one of the things that really helped me um, to kind of like to find a, a more soothing um, life that that could involve writing was um, was to consider people around me as characters. And, you know, if I could feel like that and if I could feel like kind of surrounded in the novel that I just had to decipher, I mean, I mean, all this excitement where I kind of will build in. And, and so anxiety would turn into a different kind of excitement that just needed, you know, a cipher that, that just needed a new code. And I mean, this is my advice to you. <laughs> treat your friends as your characters and treat your enemies are even better characters <laughs> and you always have fun either against them or with with them but like um i i think it's just kind of like the the way we we can go through these atrocities and and, and so we can go through this separation uh, method that you know that we are just like becoming so used to um, not only as a species but kind of like trends within the species uh, in order to be, you know, readable by by machines, ultimately. So it's kind of it's tricky. T- tell me a little bit before I. Um, the book is about a novelist, a Latin American novelist named Mona, who goes to a Swedish literary festival where the, a two hundred thousand euro prize is going to be given away, and thirteen other global literary citizens are there to compete for this prize, um, and. Tell me a, l- a little bit about the connection between literature and algorithms. I thought you were going to say literature and money. 
because it's quite a topic. Uh, actually, another guy was one day. I mean, I just read this guy like tweeting. I I'm so surprised like about all the feminist manifestos. I've never seen such a materialistic philosophy. As if yes, of course, like the spirit is just a matter, you know, of guys <laughs> who can like really, I mean, ponder about, you know, the, I mean, the, the theories of, uh, you know, of magic. But but yeah, I mean, m money is definitely a thing. And I used money and I used like the idea of the price so that you know the, that that it could structure like the suspense. Uh, it kind of like gave me this, I don't know, this um, like carrot, so I could build in. Um, like the narrative, like towards that, towards kind of like you know the idea of like you know this this ending, like you know like a gimmick, like I mean at some point people are going to pull the trigger, and that trigger you know was was loaded with with this cash. <laughs> Do you want to read from the beginning of it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Come thirsty and bring an appetite for Nordic delicatessen. This was the last line of the invitation she'd found in her campus mailbox. The meeting was scheduled to start on Thursday, but writers traveling from abroad were supposed to arrive the day before. Sweden's biggest newspaper was organizing a special reception in conjunction with the local chapter of Penn. The occasion of these festivities was the presentation of the Vaskevorts Prize, the most important literary award in Europe and one of the most prestigious in the world. The dress code for the event was something they call smart casual, which probably meant the men were supposed to wear a blazer. Wanna calmly advanced through the crowd at the airport. Behind her, her sunglasses, she wavered between substances, having drowned the pasty residue of Valium on her parched tongue with hot black coffee. Half appealed to cross the United States, another half to cross the Atlantic, and a tiny bit more for the connection between from Paris to Stockholm. In California, it was impossible to get her hands on any Valium, not unless she went all the way through Tijuana. So her shrink sent regular shipments from Lima. Mona, she was born in Peru. A side effect of the drug was that it seemed to slow her movements, something she thought made her look more elegant. Can we talk? Mona wore a beige raincoat, black leggings, and white sneakers. She was relatively tall. Strands of smooth brown hair cascaded from one side of a loose bun. Nobody could have mistaken her for a lawyer or a businesswoman. Nothing in her appearance projected that degree of formality. And despite her serious demeanor, there was something about her that was a little off. The only visible trait that identified her as a writer was perhaps her terrible eyesight. Mona's prescription sunglasses were always filthy, but she was so far-sighted that she never noticed. She removed them and squinted. Her flight was on time, ten minutes until boarding. Are you at home? An answer text accumulated on her phone, buzzing like a wasp in her pocket. Anyone watching might have seen her glance over her shoulder several times as though she was suspected somebody might be following her. You can't just run off like that. I'm coming over. Boarding began, organized by flyer status. A few minutes later, Mona was in her seat. She loved flying. As the fugitives rose... Her thoughts were free to roam the spongy terrain of clouds. She liked the feeling of being trapped in an ocean of air, unreachable, left to her own electronic devices, imprisoned and free at the same time. Take off elevated her to a spiritual plane. She couldn't resist the impulse to say a few Ave Marias. Memories of her days as a Catholic schoolgirl suffused her brain like a third drug. 
in Lima, all the girls dressed in navy blue. They'd thrown her out of that school, too. Called it medical leave. Mona closed her eyes and imagined the aircraft rattled by a hurricane, then descending into the depths, dissolving into the blue immensity before finally exploding underwater. She'd simply ceased to exist, with the incomplete masterpiece follow-up to her debut novel Maroon on her laptop that would perish alongside her in the icy void. She found the idea very relaxing. Mona slumped back into her seat and managed her neck, massaged her neck. Her nearest neighbor was across the aisle. She resembled that giant toad. You can't escape, we need to talk. Was she escaping, she wondered, smiling to herself as she cracked the seal of a miniature bottle of Stoli. Entering through her earphones, Mina Malatia curves through her body, the sound disseminating like, disseminating like an additional narcotic. Her phone was calmed down like a sleeping animal. Even if a few messages continue buzzing in her head, the switch to airplane mode had begun to take its suiting effect. One explanation she reasoned was that madness had overtaken her, but it wasn't such a clear-cut case. Her sensei, the, the chair of the Department of Romance and Iberian American Languages, uh, Literatures, knew exactly where she'd gone. And she was still in touch with her students, or at least with Raul, her favorite, who'd written to find out how she was doing. He told her that her behavior, a professor considered her a threat, who considered her a threat, had called it disappearance. It was considered inexplicable. She knew her sensei had written her too. But she'd given up her, her, her Stanford inbox, which was filling with reminders of her obligation as a foreigner in the United States. Instead, she set it to auto-reply. I won't be reading emails for a while. Not reading emails in the heart of Silicon Valley was tantamount to declaring oneself death. The truth, or rather, what she told herself at the time was truth, was that she started writing one of those terrifying, brilliant, and dangerous books, a mantis lying on way for, his prey, for its prey, half camouflaged by its own beauty, poised to attack. And now the book was starting to eat her alive. Mona had arrived at Stanford not long after the waves she made with her debut novel tossed her onto the beach of a certain impetuous prestige. And at the time when being a woman of color in the Vademecum of American racism began to confer a chic sort of cultural capital. American universities share certain essential values with historic zoos where diversity was a mark of attraction and distinction. By playing the part of an overeducated Latina adrift in Trump's America, Mona experienced academic captivity as a sort of serene freedom. North American universities asked all doctoral candidates upon application to reveal their ethnicity. Mona had clicked Hispanic, indigenous, and then typed Inca in the box underneath. This was Silicon Valley, right? She might as well try to lean in. Anchoring her identity to a brutal and exquisite empire about which so little was known would provide her with an ideal costume for the university's tribal masquerade. She'd, she'd been born in Peru, but claiming indigenous ancestry in any other context would be outrageous, much like calling herself a person of color any time prior to her arrival in the United States. There was a niche sort of glamour to it, like being a rare specimen of an endangered species, as though her mysterious DNA 
were a tiara encrusted with rare pearls, and the universities, each a massive ark navigating the great flood of the United States, heroically fulfilling their mission to save two of each beast. <laughs> Strictly speaking, Mona preferred to think of herself as more of a mermaid. The cross between the fantastic and the inexplicable, whose true habit was beneath the waterline, among the drowned. She couldn't help feeling like an outsider observer, a mermaid tourist. Anyway, the whole charade was just a bizarre exercise in academic bureaucracy, and besides that, the selection of a racial subtitle for Hispanic was obligatory. Mona's, Mona's identity and fantasy was quite well received on campus. It related to her research topic, her me-search, and offered her <laughs> the opportunity <laughs> to advance her career merely by being herself, as much as herself as humanly possible. Later, she realized it would have been even more advantageous to add some kind of physical disability, a slight but evident defect, but nobody's perfect. <laughs> Thank you. The, the characters in um, Paula's two previous books are all researchers and anthropologists and computer scientists and hackers. They're all uh, observationists of... Uh, systems and codes and sometimes humans but this is the first time that you've had a character whose primary mode of observation uh, well one of her primary modes is herself and her body and the, the book is in some ways a story of her body traveling through space and time and her registering the effects of certain substances and certain experiences and you've written about pornography in, in your first book and it, it comes up again to, in a small degree in this one can you talk a little bit about uh, using the body now in this context, in this project, and what that means uh, in, in juxtaposition to what you did before? Um, using, using my body and kind of like centering kind of around Mona, around like this one character that was kind of like the ship, it was my discovery because like before that I used to like try to make like these very complicated plots that kind of interwine. And then uh like by, by finding Mona, by finding like her character, I felt like I could do kind of like the opposite to kind of like m I mean make her be the vessel and then like let all the ideas kind of jump in and 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 organize like through through her and through her anguish. I really like the idea of like of having you know like um you know a female character in a in a professional situation um and also to make her kind of like bohemian to make her kind of lost you know the the way that we've read so so many times you know of you know so many you know um, writers like you know Henry Miller you know being lost in Paris and and getting drunk and having sex and 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 writing the first drafts on on naked bodies of other people and and you know Charles Bukowski the same and and you know so like you know th there's like all this whole pantheon of of like men having a lot of fun while they're writing and so I, so I, I i wanted to have like you know this this female character that i mean well be because she's a woman uh it's it's even more interesting that it's not just like trivially f having fun but that that fun is interwoven with with all this anguish and uh, with you know with this kind of like uh, um i i i couldn't sell 
couldn't say like uh, self-perception mm, because in a way like you know Mona has blocked something horrible that has happened to her so she's in a way kind of lacking of the uh, of this self-perception but um but kind of like also this way that we women have been trained to do which is kind of to always look at ourselves from outside um this is like this is the the big training that you know as a woman you live in this novel in which you know that is not written in the first in the first person that is kind of like this indirect you know it's more like a like you know like like madame bovary maybe you know <laughs> Um, so that you are aware what is being said. You're aware that there are like whole paragraphs about your behavior and what you're supposed to do or not do. And and and, and it was I don't know very um, like f I don't know. Um, it felt like freedom to kind of like uh, to to use this uh, this I to create this I like a me for for this for this uh, for this character and make make like the whole experience kind of all the ideas to go through her body. Um. Paul and I met a dozen years ago when Granta um, selected her for this Best Young Spanish Language Novelist issue, which Valerie Miles and a, a number of other readers who read in Spanish um, did all the work for, and, we, and the Granta in England translated it. Um, and you, you were one of the great discoveries for me of that issue, and we've, we've known you each other. You were my discovery, John. Aww. Let's talk about John, like, honestly. <laughs> Like, John, I mean, how has it been for you to write during the pandemic? Really, I want to know this. And please, this like, all of you who have questions for John, <laughs> let's run it up. Yeah. Uh, it's that's a that's reversal. True. That's two. That's that's that's, that's <laughs> where the wrestling coach slaps the mat and says two points. Um, <laughs> it was difficult, but your your book gave me so much pleasure, uh, and I I realized how little. <laughs> How little, how little <laughs> that you read actually makes you laugh, um, and laughing is is a fundamentally a bodily thing because there are the novels that make you kind of nod your head. That was funny, and then there's the, you know, that was funny, and then there's ha, and then there's the the cackle. And your book made me cackle throughout, and then it, it, it <laughs> which yeah, is to making John cackle. Cheers. It's very, <laughs> it, which is a very very difficult thing, um, and. I, what I was actually going towards is, uh, you know, we've we've known each other a dozen years, and I've never said your name, because Pola writes under a pseudonym, um, and I'm curious because you were talking about the body as kind of a the sort of the the ship that this book steers through, um, but y you've you've sort of been separated from your writerly self by a name for, for over a, well 15 years now, and I wonder if. You can say anything about that that you haven't said before. Um. Well, my, my favorite writers, they all use pseudonyms. And just to, and just to name the French ones, I'd say like Stendhal, J'adore. And, and he was even, I love the fact that he is in, you know, in the cimetière here. And, and he even changed his name for like a third or fourth, fourth time just to be dead with, a, with, a, with another name. He invented his name just to sound more Italian because he had fell in love with, in, with Milan, of course, you know. And so he called, he was born Henri Bale. He became Stendhal. And then for, for dying, he prepared, he wanted to be Arrigo Bale. <laughs> it's not even Enrico Bale, which would be the Italian form. It's like Arrigo, A-R-A. So it's magical. And well, then Jorsan, et cetera. 
Um, to me, it's a form of freedom. Well, in particular, like I'm, I'm obsessed with languages. So, um, well, wh when I was a kid, I used to like read, you know, uh, you know, one, you know, things from from the right to, to the left, and then from left to right. Like it was a thing that that I did, and then I kind of lost. But it was, I don't know, kind of um, a thing that made me like very early on like interested in kind of the materiality of of words. And then I kind of like realized that I, I, I didn't want to be a civilian, you know. I didn't want to be the same person that pays the bills. Uh, I wanted like complete, absolute freedom. And that was going to be my kind of like my, my, my boat or kind of like in the sense of, of devotion um, and that sense of like boto. And like, like the way you take like a voto of chastity or a voto, well, so my voto of pleasure was to be a new species, and it's actually pretty handy because, uh, you know, I'm I'm you know I'm pretty much the only one with that name, and so it's 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 much easier, you know, in in Google, uh, and even you know when people used to usually do the same mistakes. And so I mean, maybe even like uh, three versions of the same person, but it's always the same person, and and I and I like you know the idea that um, that the writing persona like has kind of like her own life, and and it it really it really helps me to write you know that way. Uh, and even early on, you know, when I was like eight years old, I took the pseudonym of Cora Malaga. I don't know. I have no idea, but Cora was the next girlfriend of my dad, so evidently there was some a difficult thing going on. And then I was, you know, into encyclopedias or something like that, so I took the name Malaga, like I liked it. And and so I, and and I would and I would write like my my early novels when I was like eight, and you know I was you know into the you know, French Revolution or things like that, and 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 I would and I would sign them, you know, like like that as Cora. <laughs> So it's been a thing. Do you think, um, you know, one of the things that this book dramatizes in a very amusing way is the way at literary festivals that writers um, explain what it is they do and they sort of perform their, their writing uh, without reading their writing. Uh, and, you know, I, I would love for you to read a section from another, uh, from another part of the book because this, this writer steps forward and... You kind of watch through Mona's eyes as he, uh, well. But you won't get, won't get away, John. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> he will not. We are all in cahoots here now. <laughs> On behalf of all of us here at the meeting, it's my pleasure to welcome Marco Guncio, who's just arrived from Colombia. Marco is the author of Cartagena in Flames, a book about a time traveler hacker who ends up on board of the ship of a famous pirate, Sir Francis Drake. <laughs> Marco just landed a few hours ago, so we're hoping he'll have a chance to rest after happy hour at the Selmas. <laughs> For those of you who haven't been yet, I, we have open mic here tonight. It's the official bar of the festival. Happy hour lasts from 5 to 7. So from all of us here, a warm welcome to Marco. Marco submitted to the applause and took the microphone the winner was handing him. He preferred to speak standing up while walking around. He had long hair and wore tall tiger cowboy boots and tight black pants cinched to a thick belt. A wide-brimmed ha black hat completed his pirate look. 
he extended the microphone cord with a gesture that reminded Mona of the hard rock singer Luis Miguel. I'm Colombian. I come from South America. For those of you who don't know, we have presidents who sound like they're reggaeton singers. Chavez, Lugo, Dulma, Dilma, Cristina, Barcelona. Everything disastrous that happens in the rest of the world happened first in South America. <laughs> Donald Trump is just figuring out how to be a Banana Republic boss, and that's already our specialty. <laughs> we have excellent coffee, plenty of vacation spots, and we raised the best soccer players for you to buy up for European teams. Our Virgin Mary is Karl Marx, to whom we always appeal whenever we want to show that we're good people. We might be writers, but we're Marxist writers. We're on the left, as we should be. And at the same time, we try to convince everybody to lend us money because our capitalism works just the same as any other kind. We eat meat every day, and we haven't yet managed to get our dogs accustomed to a vegan diet. And one of us controls Christendom, the Pope. The audience responded sympathetically to his political references. Marco paid the applause no mind, instead gazing silently into the distance. It was his personal theatrical touch. So you have to realize, having, being raised in a place like that, agitating for revolution becomes your true calling. Our parents dedicated their lives to instilling into us the importance of subverting the system. They dive in droves. But like my little granny from Cartagena used to say, they had something to die for. And when the Yankees, because that we call them, when the Yankees flooded the world with their Coca-Cola and their electric appliances in the 60s, our parents and, and grandparents carried the revolutions forward into the tropics with the bears and cigars. All this by way of saying, as a reminder, that revolution is an essential part of the South American brand. We found it charming, the way that Marxism came back in style in New York, and the way Occupy encampments sprayed like a rash through so many cities. Okay, great. They finally figured out. We, on the other hand, we were wearing those Che Guevara t-shirts before they were even cool. Marco took off his hat, revealing long, wavy brown hair, undulating down from a receding hairline. He tossed the hat into the air. It floated it up and then came down to make a perfect landing on the back of his chair. Amazed, the audience redoubled his attentions. Marco went on. The question I'd like to propose we take up is this. How do we, crea how do we create collective forms of resistance in the current political landscape? How can we do, what can we do besides tweet, tweeting? Is there some kind of absolute power still out there ruling over us? Is there still a singular monster fight worth fighting for? And if so, who is that monster and where is it hiding? Marco made his way between the rows of spectators, stopping in the middle of the tent like an evangelical preacher. The audience was rapt. He had them right where he wanted them. First of all, we have to accept that our readers are no longer human that we're all immersed, immersed in an immense narrative, the largest representational endeavor in the history of the world. It's Google. It organizes and indexes everything you've ever done and catalogs your desires, even the things you don't know you desire. It keeps statistics on your loves and your hates and the various possibilities for your future. The characters, which is to say the users, are increasingly are increasing in number every day. 
And every day, many of them write themselves into the story, each user doing this or her best to sound just like themselves. The genre for these characters is out of fiction, playing at being real. We are the characters who populate an omniscient novel that indexes and organizes itself for the benefit of non-human readers. These readers are also searching for something real, something much more real, more traveling, a search that leads to surveillance and control. Marco paused to see what effect his last proclamation was having. The audience was eating it up. The intersection between literature and technology was an inevitable and much desired theme, and nobody knew where it might leave, lead. The literary world still didn't know what to make of the digital frontier, which, which was why talks with titles like How to Lose Friends on Facebook or Snapchat and Me were generally well attended. Writers allowed themselves to share candid moments and realizations with each other because computers had put them all on the same level. They were like children, stupefied by, uh, by fabulous new toys. But technology was a talisman of the now. And if a writer couldn't do much more than stumble from one banality to the next, at least he could console himself with the excuse that nobody ever knows how to speak about the present moment. Mona sighed letting her head fa fall to the side to stretch the muscles of her neck. Marco's spiel was a lot better than the last time she'd heard it. All his dramatic soap, op soap, soap star effects were, were rehearsed. And that toss had business. Where had he caught on that? The natural flow of skepticism running through the audience's neural pathways had been effectively blocked. And technology wasn't just a Latin American phenomenon, so that was a plus for the presentation. Whenever the topic was technology and the author didn't leave him himself to the, usual, to the usual user travails, like summary expulsions from, from this e-commerce site, uh, people expected some kind of Asperger's level performance, as if speaking about technology with authority required the presenter to be some kind of method actor who could vividly convey memories from his life as a machine. Marco had worked hard on his part. He dreamed up a whole new lineage for his pirate persona he was inhabiting, a Latin American lineage. And judging by how things were going, it was working. So what does my South American mind, steeped in a Marxist education, have to say about all this? If Google is the great novel of our era and the creator of, of this new genre of objective realism, then the future of the human novel might be something like a hack a mechanism of clandestine writing. Allow me to take you with me on a little detour to the Caribbean waters of my beloved Colombia. This isn't going to be about coffee or drugs, but about something even more deeply rooted in the identity of, Colo of Cartagena, the city where I was born. As you probably know, a lot of pirates ended up in the Caribbean. At the same time, Shakespeare was putting on his place English sailors entertain themselves by pillaging Spanish galleons in the high seas, stealing everything the Spanish had already looted from America. Sir Francis Drake was one of the most famous among the many pirates who have lived and died obsessed with sacking Cartagena. It was the ultimate target, the richest and the most luxurious Spanish ports, once surrounded by extraordinary wall, the most extensive fortification in the entire Spanish empire. The line of defense not only extended for kilometers, it also hit some nasty surprises, like the double line of cannons the Spanish installed along the thickest wall ever to be built in the Western world. 
Well, not even Francis Drake could pillage Cartagena. The city knew how to, to defend himself. And that's why I'm inviting you to do that, to think like pirates. Uh, no, yeah. Now there's like this sex scene, but I think it's much better if we, if we move, if we switch this part to John. <laughs> John, tell us. I love how um, this, this book seduces you into thinking it's cynical, but it's not. And so you have these, these sort of loops of argumentation and critical thinking in the middle of the book. And as the, 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 the loop is coming to its conclusion as an act of criticism, it turns back into fiction. And the fiction works harder than the, uh, and works more effectively than, than the critical thinking. Uh, and so Marco actually becomes a character uh, more effectively than he becomes a sort of TED, walking TED talk. And I, I love this because it feels like this book is, as you mentioned, written in third person. Uh, it's not in first person. It's not a, it's not a complete and total set, uh, satirical take on autofiction. But it does feel like um, one, of the, one of the ways it deviates in, from autofiction is its commitment to, to, to its belief in fiction. Do you feel that we should deviate a little bit from out of fiction? I mean, how how I mean, how are you feeling like related to I mean, the self and writing now? I I, I think the self is a is a handle that we use to carry everything con connected in our skin through the world. And as such, uh, I haven't found anybody who can walk around without that handle. Um, and I think there are some writers in the world who are astonishing at describing the peculiar disintermediation of having that handle. Um, one of them is here. Uh, you know, one of them is not here. But there are only about five or six, I think. Um, by and large, life without drama Um, without the invention and without the scissoring of the tools of fiction, or at least fiction that's more naturalistic, is boring. Uh, and I personally, as a reader and as a person, uh, as an individual, I, I find the most, uh, I find myself the most uh, claustrophobic when I'm asked to, to, to live inside the self. Because I think it's a fiction. Um, and for all the reasons that you said you need the fiction of your name and everything, um, I, I feel like I, I don't want a name. I would like no name. That would be the best name possible. No name, no John. <laughs> well, my name is actually not a name. My name oh. is, is Freeman was a name that was given to freed serfs. And so there are loads of people with the name Freeman. Um, You know, it's almost like saying, well, in some ways, it's like saying Smith um, uh, or Silver. Uh, it's, it, except uh, those are activities. Freeman is an existence, as, as a state of, you know, you are now free. Uh, and so my name records what I, my family probably once was about 300 years ago in, in Britain. And I, I don't know, I wish I could go back to that, <laughs> that kind of lack of identity. But I, I, don't, I don't know. I think one of the things that, that self-consciousness, I think, is one of the greatest enemies towards um, contentment and happiness. 
Uh, and I think there are ways to be conscious of the self and the ways that, you, say, our different selves have particular colorings and privileges that come with them without giving in to the kind of em empirical narcissistic self. And that's, that's why I'm, I lean away from it. Because I think, ultimately, the, the self is often, it's often a weapon. I think it's a very poet's point of view to, to play the selfless in order to write. I mean, is, I mean, is, is, I mean, are you interested in that, like in, in this selflessness when, when, when you start writing your poems or, or, the, or, or when you read them? I guess I'm skeptical of psychological processes. I feel like most of my uh, actions are, just, are, are, are reactionary or animalistic. Um, and so the patterns of psychology that I'm told that I should have or I do have seem to me like stories that don't fit anymore. They don't fit my body or my behavior. Uh, and I think we'll be a lot more closely connected to the world around us that, you know, th th this, this is a living thing, that's a living thing, that's a living thing. And there, th many of them are will live to be a lot older than us in our lifetime. And I don't think that, you know, obviously trees have not yet produced symphonies, and they don't have governments. But they have other things, and they have other forms of knowledge systems. And like you said, they could have been like the gods of another era. I, yeah, absolutely. And I, and I love that in, in your second novel, about how there, there are moments, as in Tar Baby, which is one of my favorite novels of Toni Morrison, where your, your characters meet, and they almost become part of the environment around them when they have, when they have sex the first time. It's like some other force takes over, a kind of wilder, feral force. And the, one of the reasons I, I love your work so much is it, it, it yaws between extremely rational uh, kind of Apollonian thinking uh, about the, the patterning of human consciousness and its attempts to make narratives that we then live by and control our, 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 our societies with and this sort of wilder, feral side of ourselves that comes out of what sometimes is labeled nature, but is something, I think, somewhat more mysterious and mythic. Yeah, I, I, I agree that that's, that's one of the, the kind of mysterious things that, um, I don't know, that really put, I don't know, the, the, the drive to write, to, to write, to get, to, to write together. Um, <coughs> well, it becomes a death drive. I mean, it, you, this is this is also a book about nothingness and death, and about an attempt to try to put 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 a record on the world, right? It's oh, now, now you look really sad. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I I love the idea of of this uh, of this imminence, uh, like Thanatos, like darkness looming in, and I love the idea that that she herself like had this this mystery in, inside as if she was the novel and she had to undergo a space in time processes in order to access the own truth of her own novel and but you know she she couldn't have done that without without like that darkness that she like traverses as if you know I'm I'm full of uh, nav navy metaphors tonight. <laughs> I'm probably say la senda, but 
I, I love what you said about like you know the characters like beco- becoming their environment, and if like precisely you know this it th- this darkness is the waters like it's this death that they have to go through in order to survive. I mean those waters are also inside, and and so like this kind of like double um, like double traversing, uh, you know. The, makes me feel of like entangled voices you know the, the the voices of the dark and their i mean and also voices that that you wouldn't even know that they exist but they kind of like appear and and you have to listen to them and 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 they will also have to you know make their way into your book but i think you know if they do make their way your the way their way into their book into your book that that would you know that's that's a more controlled form of existence um i i think you you i mean i'm i'm kind of really excited by the fact that you know we're not just uh you know just talking about writing but you were like surrounded by writers here and 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 it's i don't know i think it's so it's it's such a it's such a great moment to to write i feel like it's this like heightened subjectivity and like it like it feels like I mean, I don't know, there are like, I mean, all these like looming monsters and, you know, publishing will end and all that. And at the same time, you know, I mean, more books are published more than before. And, and it's like this this cascading, um, I mean, a cascade that doesn't go down, but that that goes up. And so I, I love this kind of like, uh, this feeling of this uh, subjectivity bubble. And well, I hope we all burst in flames together. <laughs> That's a really good place to, to to end this part of our conversation. But um, I want to invite anyone who has a question of of Pola um, or John or Pola uh, <laughs> or or Adam or Sylvia, who very generously or Bella. <laughs> so, a question for both of you: uh, What do you think uh, the main goal of a writer should be in existence now, right now. But he were, you were looking at him. <laughs> I, I think, um, I don't think I would have said this two years ago, but I think pleasure is one of them. Yes, I completely agree. Honestly, I, 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 I'm not saying Netflix, I'm not saying entertainment, I'm not saying escape. I'm saying that pleasure can be complicated. And I think um, it's 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 been given a bad name, you know, um, that there's lots of forms of pleasure that don't involve the absence of pleasure, that that we have 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 to get better at describing. Um, right, right. I l- I love this what you're saying. You know that it doesn't have to be boolean. Like, I mean, you 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 cannot like pin it down to a boolean. I mean, boolean in the sense of like, I mean, yes, electricity or not electricity. Oh, sorry, <laughs> sorry. So I interrupted you. No, no, no. I, I love that uh, metaphor. No, but I, I, I support you completely. Uh, we, we write. I mean, and we have to write because it's the most beautiful thing to do, and because it's. I mean, and when when you read, you then and then you want to write. That's you know. That's when you get like all this circle of pleasure going, and that's why you know such um, incredible places like this exist for centuries because life is not enough. We need to write and we need to read because life could never be in, be enough and 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 life becomes like heightened precisely because we read and precisely because we write and becomes life becomes pleasurable because we have those things and we can have them and access them 
Thank you. So, um, so thank you so much for this and for being here. And, you know, on the subject of humor, it occurs to me that it's just so great to he be in a room where we were actually laughing together because I think one of the things with Zoom that really didn't translate during readings was just the fact that we were, we couldn't hear each other laugh, and that's so special. And so, uh, Paula, I was wondering, when you're writing humor, is there something innate in you that makes you know that the joke is going to be funny or how does that work? I usually want to make fun of people. <laughs> and and many times also I want to have my revenge. <laughs> and and many times like if I don't know, you know, if some things like didn't really work out or 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 I don't or I'm I'm not happy with something that happened, uh, it it is it is through understanding what that person is, or or what happened, you know, and to make it into into a fun situation. What what makes me forget about it, or at the same time remember it the way I want to remember it, which is through you know, um, I it's my kind of coping mechanism with with things. Uh, usually, I kind of realize that you know if I that you I mean when you when there's something that you don't like, you you can always choose. To even get mad, or kind of like be kind of like um, kind of charmed by things. So you know, if there's something you don't like, you're like, ah. And so you know, you 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 tell your story about it, and you can construct it, and and somehow then you distance from the thing that you didn't like. So um, I don't. I think like writing with humor, and you know, writing about people, and and kind of having them as insects. Um, it's something um, that I encourage you to do <laughs> because I think it's really good for human relations. Um, we cannot help having, you know, bad thoughts and we cannot help, like, you know, having, you know, complicated situations with people. But, you know, if we, if we can turn it into, uh, into some other thing, we, we both distance and at the same time we cherish we, and we transformed and we need to transform things. Thank you for your question. That was so lovely. <laughs> <laughs> oh, is that funny that passed? Yeah, come with up. It's like a walking oh. <laughs> time machine back to 1999. <laughs> Where's my club whistle? Hi, I have a question. I'm over here. Hi. Um, Pola, you, you translate as well, if I'm not mistaken. You do translations. I, I used to I used to translate I used to translate from from different languages uh, like one of my first jobs was kind of translating from Latin and okay. yeah <laughs> but you know for some like Madbademecum I don't know DSM four <laughs> I mean like like a psychiatric method whatever and and yeah and I translated from from English into Spanish and then I translated a little bit from Spanish into English but I I feel that this you know, it's not my call because I get too obsessed with with the text, and then I end up I end up doing things that I'm not like. You have to be a very special talent uh, to be to be a great translator. Kind of like to be able to distance yourself um, and really recognize the voice and the cadence, and not turning into yours. Um, I, I think that that was sort of 
going to be my question. Like, I was going to ask how do you approach translation in a similar way that you would approach writing your own novel? Like for you, is it a, is it a fresh writing or is it a rewriting? I don't know if that makes sense. No, 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 absolutely. I think, um, yeah, uh, I, I, you know, I remember like translating like Saskia Sassen, you know, like sociologist, and, and that's very easy not to be involved. Uh, you know, and that's pretty straightforward when you, when you translate theory. But then you know if then you, you you start into embellishments. So I realized that you know it's not it's not what I have to do. Uh, at the same time, I, I'm I'm tempted because you know I I don't know I like for example I I I, I really like uh, Portuguese. So I I read some Portuguese and then I f- and and it's hard to to find translations of Portuguese people. So sometimes I feel like oh I have to translate this because this would be amazing. Um, but yeah, but hopefully, you know, we will have a growing uh, translators community because it is really a talent, and and most good translators are incredible writers, incredible processes. Drinks. <laughs> Anyone else? Oh yes. Hi, John. Hi, Paula. Um, just, I'm really interested in consciousness and the self and what's how that's been eroded and metastasized and everything over the past 18 months. So in terms of, uh, like, social media is kind of like an amplified self. And I don't know, uh, what what's going on with your writing? John, you described it as a... a obliterated self or a diminished self. But I'm just wondering... Um, where do you drop your pin between those two kind of... Maybe they're not polarities, but I know, John, you obviously have to do a lot of lo- work with Freemans on Twitter and stuff. And So how, how does that all come together? <laughs> Seven <laughs> questions in one. <laughs> Paula, you start, because she was taking an Instagram video as you were asking <laughs> that question. <laughs> yes, it, it, was <laughs> it was apropos. Um, well, I used to have a sort of tra- traumatic uh, relationship with with social media, like like most people, and and it's not like I controlled it because I think it kind of like can can come and go, but um, I think it's important to kind of feel that you know social media is for you and not you for social media, and it's it's something that I mean to me has changed things. Because it really amplifies your audience, and 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 it's something good to have. And sometimes, like you get into some sort of war, and and you realize that the people that follow you are your army, and that can lead to very funny situations. And it's also a way to defend yourselves. Because, um, well, um, I don't know. I I kind of hate to to say bad things against my, our era, because uh, not only because. I I don't like you know the the tropes of like Ubi soon like where are things lost like I'm not nostalgic so I try to really embrace the present and and kind of like cope with it and 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 deal with it so for me as long as it doesn't really take out you know my my writing time it's totally fine that whatever wars take place do take place on Twitter because before in a country like where I come from in Argentina a woman like me would get a shot in the head. So to me, I mean, to be, I mean, to have enemies on Twitter that say like terrible things about me uh, now, 
uh, because I write, you know, about I write about politics and all that, and so that that creates trouble sometimes. Uh, it's kind of fantastic because it's all symbolic violence. That's the kind of violence you want. It's like it's the same thing, you know, as a as a team, like you know, the the Paris Saint Germain against something else. It's perfect. So I I'm not afraid of any constant culture. I feel like you know the only way you can be afraid of that is like I mean if you don't drink the Kool Aid, then it won't affect you somehow. Um, I think we can like get over that and and I don't know, kind of move on. And and enjoy Twitter and enjoy like having this like friends and foes mm, I don't know ecosystem. It could be it's it's fun actually. <laughs> this this has been like pro my pro Twitter moment. <laughs> Let's get all get our accounts together. I think that's a, a very good place to end on because um, otherwise I'll just go on a Twitter rant and <laughs> and it's such a nice night and uh, it's so nice to to be out and together and to celebrate a brilliant book, a really truly Thank beautiful, you, funny, gorgeous, profound book. Um, Thank you so much, Charlie. And, and having Paula here to to read from it and talk about it and Sylvia, and Adam, for you to host us again. It it uh, it, it it's just so special. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you all. You have been listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles. Links to the books discussed in this episode are available in the show notes, alongside information about how to become a friend of Shakespeare and Company. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please consider rating it wherever you listen. The intro and outro music is Mr. Ginger by the brilliant Alex Fryman, available on his album Play It Gentle. Take care, stay safe, and thanks again for listening. <laughs>